if you're thinking about getting into cooking, do your research on where you're going to work, be committed, practice a lot at home, and uh, you know, cook for people. If you love cooking and you're passionate about it, you, you need to find that bridge of loving cooking, but also having a career, because they're two very different things. So you gotta have a bridge that connects the two. And if you can find that, you're half a chance. We continue to talk staffing on Dirty Linen this week and we are heading to Brisbane, Queensland to talk to Shannon Callum. Shannon has a few pots on the boil. He is the owner and chef of Montrachet, a fine dining French restaurant. He recently set up Lumiere Culinary Studio and he also has the Needery Pastry Kitchen and School there as well. Shannon, welcome to Dirty Linen. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. It's really great to have you on the show and you have a wealth of experience in the industry. Um, I might just get you to just introduce yourself um, so the listeners know a little bit more about you and and where you're coming from. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a Brizzy boy, uh, born in Bundaberg actually, but grew up in a rural working class suburb on the north side of Brisbane. Uh, come from a, a tradie family. My father's a diesel fitter. My mother's a, a, clean, a cleaner. Um, all my brothers are mechanics. I was the youngest, so the, I was sort of always given the worst of the worst jobs in a mechanical workshop. So I think that's what put me off it. Um, and I really always into things that were more artistic and uh, and a bit more refined. So at the age of 16, I landed on the doors of a kitchen called Raphael's, which was a, a three-hat restaurant back in the day, still the only restaurant in the history of the guide to hold that score as a BYO with no points for a wine list and uh, and worked with a fantastic chef called Rick Stephen, who's still my mentor today, 28 years down the track. Um, and then after there, started a lot of competing domestically. Um, and then uh, after five, my first five-year apprenticeship as pastry, I uh, went to do my chef's apprenticeship at the Sheridan. So I went from small family restaurant to large hotel to learn all those management systems and all the different outlets. Um, and then uh, continued my competing days and competed for about 20 years all up, um, doing two culinary Olympics in the Australian Senior National Team in Germany, uh, Global Chef World Final in Norway, Dubai World Cup, and also the Baku's Door uh, two times, 2013 and 2015, just to name a few of the notable ones. But um, So, yeah, certainly been around and uh, put myself through a lot, but wouldn't change a day of it. That is just such an incredible summary of, I mean, it doesn't even bring us up to date, but just of your um, passion for the industry and your longevity in the career. And and even the way you start that story, talking about, you know, Rick, who's still your mentor, you obviously have such a respect for the craft and, yeah, and for the industry that's built up around it. Yeah, I think, well, you know, I was always a bit of a history buff as well. It really interested me. So when I started my apprenticeship, I was a real student to the craft and I was really interested in where is all of this profession come from before me and um, it was sort of something that was really ingrained in me that I have to really learn a lot about that and be very strong with all those things so I can have uh, better tools in the shed, I guess, on how to develop myself and and how to pivot and change as certainly times would change and trends would change throughout the career. And I guess looking back at my chef, uh, Rick, who's now based in Singapore, he's actually the chef for Singapore Airlines globally and has a team of about 5,800 chefs. Um, I guess one thing, when I look at uh, him and also a lot of mentors I've had around the world um, who are older than me, uh, the ones that have continued to always reinvent themselves and develop themselves and, and keep up with the trends and the times. I think that's really important uh, if you're a career chef. I wonder what it's like um, to be the 
head chef of an international airline at the moment? <laughs> well, oh yeah, it'd be hard going. Um, look, I suppose in an organisation like that, you, yes, it's, it'd be demanding, but you also would have you've got a lot of support structure around you as well, um, and they certainly would keep themselves busy. Um, you normally find, you know, big kitchens with big systems like that um, would also be doing things locally for the local community as well. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm sure, like everybody, just be, no matter what the what the size you are, I'm sure they're doing things they never used to do before until things start opening up more for them as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, so, Shannon, I, I think you know I've got you on the show because I know you're really passionate about training, and you know, as we talk about staffing, obviously, people who've got that passion for the industry and the knowledge and how to perform in it. And of course, that continuing thirst for knowledge is, is so crucial to get, getting and retaining staff. Can you just, I suppose, just give us a little sense of what you think of the place of training in the industry today? Well, I think I think compared to years gone by, I think there's a, a huge uh, uh, importance on people to be able to do the training in-house themselves. Um, and I know some people, uh, some large organisations in the industry, large companies like, you know, if you look at the staff, for example, and uh, large groups like that, they certainly do a lot of work with the in-house training. Um, I guess it depends on what platform you're on. So, you know, if it's large catering compared to something that's more of an artisan approach, I think the more, like everything, or like a lot of industries these days, I feel that, I guess, well, the word artisan, I didn't even know what that was until several years ago. But um, I guess if you're going to make everything, uh, you know, from a classical way um, and all facets of the kitchen, from patisserie to butchery to working with fish and working with vegetables, um, I guess it, it can be difficult to find uh, the right uh, environment to be able to, to learn all of those things. And I guess also ingraining people that are starting their careers in cooking, it's really important to get the message into them that you'll only go to a certain point where you then become your best teacher. And that's something that was taught to me by my chef at a very young age. And so I really understood that, that I'm only going to learn so much from different chefs, from different kitchens around the place. Um, and also, I guess you get to a certain stage from a cooking uh, experience, cooking ability um, where you're really just starting to learn more about the philosophies of other chefs and somewhere along the line you need to work out what's your philosophy. And, uh, and But if you don't have the tools in the shed, you're going to be really limited on what that philosophy might be. Um, and also then everything else comes from comes in many layers uh, below that, working with producers and suppliers and working the seasons and the allocations and how to communicate with people if you're going to put something on a menu, the budgeting, um, making sure that the business is viable, all of those things, you're only ever going to learn a certain amount off everybody. Sooner or later, you need to teach yourself those things. Mm. I mean, what do you think of the state of training at the moment? Do you, I mean, do you think things are okay? No, I think it's really poor, really poor. Yeah, I, I think, I think um, you know, people, one thing, you know, when I was younger and I'd listen to older chefs talk, I always said to myself, I never want to be one of those older chefs that have a grim look on things and, you know, and, uh, and, and the naysayers and doubt the younger generation coming through and all that kind of thing because there's many fantastic young chefs coming through. But I think the job of a chef has changed. Um, and I think the understanding of the word, what does a chef mean, um, 
has slightly changed as well. When I was younger, we were taught that there's only one chef in the kitchen and everybody else is a cook. Um, that certainly changed over the years as well. Um, you know, chef at the end of the day means you're the chef, you're the chief, you're the boss, um, and you have to be the boss of everything, mentoring young people to, like I said, the administration, the budgeting, um, you know, having your sergeants underneath you like your sous chefs and whatnot um, that are helping to train and delegate things out amongst the team. Um, but I think people really need to focus for a longer period of time on just being a really good cook um, and then sort of working out where they want their career to go. Um, but so the training is very different now. Um, but in saying that, it's sort of been left behind because there's still big venues to open. There's still big restaurants to open. Um, there's still restaurant groups and hotel groups. And so here in Australia, I sort of sometimes scratch my head wondering, well, where's the next crop of those career chefs coming from? because the training now has all been dumbed down, um, again, like a lot of things, not just in our industry, but everywhere. Um, but the service is still in demand. So the training really hasn't, I guess, one or the other hasn't really kept up with each other or one or the other has been left behind. I guess there's two different ways of looking at it. Mm. I mean, there are so many different aspects to what you're saying. One, one thing that I suppose there's a few things that come to my mind. One is that people perhaps are more impatient just to get into the workforce and just do stuff. They feel like they just should be given a go. And the other one is that pressure. Yeah, there are so many more venues now than there were, um, rel you know, relative to population. It's just re there's obviously restaurants, you know, everywhere on every corner at the bottom of every development. Um, there's a lot more larger venues for events and all that kind of stuff. So there is that demand to pull people out of training and to fast track them into the industry. It's very true. And I think you hit the nail. Um, I think you somewhat hit the nail on the head there uh, talking about, um, you know, the volume of uh, venues within the industry and, uh, you know, the short supply of people that are being trained, but also more importantly, people wanting things in the now. You know, when I was younger, you gauged your, uh, you know, how hard you worked. Um, you sort of gauged on if that was warranted by what you were learning and that was your wealth. And it was always drilled into me that until you've done this for a good 10 to 12 years, um, that's when you'll sort of become your own chef and or have the have the tools in the shed behind you to then go and run a kitchen for someone or at you know even with the most demand would be running your own kitchen um so i guess in that you know 10 year period you were trying to learn all different areas of the industry so then you you could make your own mind up okay what sort of chef do i want to be and what venue do i want to run and how do i see myself as a leader um whereas after 3 years of doing an apprenticeship now and getting a certificate that's worth the same as my certificate, um, I guess it doesn't quite add up unless, like some other industries, things have changed and we don't need to work like that anymore. But that's where it's, I guess, where I was saying earlier something's been left behind because we do still need to work like the way we were trained many years ago. Um, you know, people forget that we, 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 uh, we work with fresh ingredients and that's going in someone's body. So if you aren't strong on kitchen management, hygiene practices, training, you know, or your stock rotation, just kitchen management from top to bottom before you even worry about the financials, um, then what sort of standard are we setting ourselves? And for someone who's represented Australia on the toughest stages in the world uh, for chefs, 
the reason one of the one of the key reasons that drives you to do that is you, you're representing your nation to the world on what standard of chefs come from our country and that's and again that was something that was instilled to me at a very young age the importance of that because when you travel uh one of the first questions you ask people is what was the food like so you know it's very tourism is very important to australia and our uh i guess our showcasing our producers having that platform in kitchens through high-end premium dining rooms that's something that's really really important um and there's again there's many great venues in australia that do a fantastic job of showcasing that but it is limited when you look at the size of our country it is limited and it's only going to get more limited because of the because of the training Mm, there's you know there's obviously such a sense of pride in what you do, uh, you know, the way that you want to use it to showcase not just your skills, but, you know, the bounty of the country that you live in. So there's there's so much in that. And it, it, you know what springs to my mind is like, I can't help but think that perhaps there's something in the increase in restaurants that aren't owned by people that have come up in the industry. You know, this restaurant's becoming more of a business. Like, do you think there's something to that? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, when I came back from my second Bakus door, that was my last competition and I hung up the boots after that and I came back to Brizzy in, in uh, early 2015 and took over a really iconic restaurant called Montrachet and uh, it was a real institution and, you know, I could have easily just opened a new restaurant like most people would, but I'm one about challenges and I'm also one about taking something that's already great, has a great clientele base um, and and having a restaurant that will go the 25, 30 years, because that used to be a normal thing. And that's one of the reasons why my wife and I decided to take on Montrachet, not take something that's just a new restaurant. For me, that was an easier option. Um, so um, I guess in the answer to your question, that it has changed the dynamic of our industry or our profession because there are less chef owners now. So, And I mean real chef owners, where it is just yourself, and or your partner, and there's no investors, there's no one else involved, um, and you've got skin in the game, and it's and it's and it's all on you. So um, I think that that uh, I think that goes a long way to change uh, uh, or what has changed our industry for sure. When I came back, um, you know, talking to people in the media would say, "Oh, you must be so excited to be back uh, in Brisbane now with your own restaurant. Things have progressed so much, and things have changed so much." and for me personally, we've gone backwards in in some regard. In some regard, we've gone forward as well. We've certainly done a better job of showcasing our native cuisine than what we were in the early 90s and late 80s when we made the big mistake of calling it bush tucker. Um, so you're never going to sell anything that's refined uh, or a premium offering calling it bush tucker because that was the big push in the early 90s. Um, and I think Australia's a young Australian chefs have rolled on the back of looking at people like Rene Redzepi, for example, that really champion Scandinavian food. Um, you know, uh, so but they but they done in a real professional way. Um, so I think Australia has still has a huge amount of untapped potential um, to go down that path. But I'm without a lot of sh- proper chef owners, I'm not sure because when you think about it, a lot of the direction. And the philosophy, as I spoke about earlier, comes from the chef. And that's built around the team. Same with the maitre d' or the restaurant manager and certainly the sommelier. They are building the culture in sync with the chef. um, And that's how it all goes. So if you're a restaurant owner and you've got your own ideas, um, how's it ever going to work for the long term? The chef will always work hard and work above and beyond what is needed if they've got the skill behind them to produce something great. But is it going to be around for 10, 12, 15, 20 years when it's not theirs? 
no, it won't be. So when the chef leaves the kitchen, well, the brigade leaves with him or they disband and they go to other kitchens. And then the restaurant owner is left scratching his head saying, well, how am I going to replace that chef? And they can't. So if you look at the cycle of great restaurants in Australia at the moment, and this is in general, I would say they're around three to five year lifespan. So that's very different to when I was young, when all the great restaurants, all most the majority of the hatted restaurants that I knew of when I was young, most they were nearly all chef owners. Um, they weren't going anywhere. You can't just pack up and go. You've made that commitment, and that restaurant is like your dining room. It's like your home. So it's a big call if you're going to shut it down and move on. So pe- those sort of things tended to be around for the long term. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so what I would love you to do now, Shannon, is to talk about the way that you've structured Montrachet in concert with Lumiere and, and the production kitchen because as much as you hark back to, you know, the glory days of the chef-owner um, paradigm, it's actually really hard to do that these days with, um, you know, people working, uh, you know, sticking to not doing so over the hours um, and, with you know, with a changed kitchen culture. So so tell us how you actually make that stack up. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, and I guess if we're going to change, you need to draw on your experience to work out how to change. Um, I know I mentioned, to, I mentioned in the past that, um, you know, I've personally, and not that it had much to do with me, but personally I was really frustrated to see a lot of uh, chefs down south um, that are in the media really cop it for, you know, for some of the um, overworking the staff and whatnot because that's, that's certainly... Uh, one side of the story, of course it is. Totally don't disagree with it in this day and age or in any day and age, but what's the solution? So if it's a real issue and uh, and we need to think of a solution, well, unless the patrons want to spend at least double of what they're paying now to go to a restaurant so everyone would have two brigades, one to do lunch, one to do dinner, that's an easy solution. But anyone I talk to doesn't want to do that, doesn't want to pay pay the extra. So then what's the solution? Um, so I guess for myself personally, I tried to really think about how am I going to change the way in what we work and still produce what we can produce where you make everything from scratch. Um, and I guess seeing things around the world and um, seeing things in big operations, being involved in small chef owner restaurants, um, you have a good I guess you've got a good pool of knowledge to pull from and how to make it better. So in our operation, we have a big central kitchen that's a 1,000 square metres. Um, we have a small family-owned restaurant. We've got a boat. We've got events business. We've got pastry shops. We've got all the facets of our industry all, all under our banner. So with a central kitchen, it's hard to think about how that's going to draw enough revenue to, to run that big facility. It's got to wear many different hats. So in our operation, it suited, I guess, well, that's how that idea came about, was that this central kitchen can back up a restaurant like Montrachet for a lot of the arduous and time-consuming mise-en-place, things like stocks and consommes and long, bra- long uh, slow-cooked braised items and farinaceous items, all the homemade pastas, for example, and, many, and, of course, all the pastry, all the artisan breads, all the petit four, all those things come out of our central kitchen made by experts and they don't need to worry about service. So all that work was taken out of the old Montrachet. Um, and so we do now, um, we still have uh, the space restriction, of course, with COVID, but we do some different turns that we came up, start service a little bit earlier, we get an extra turn in the middle of service. So we do about the same amount of numbers we used to do uh, pre-COVID, not far off it. Um, and we have uh, five chefs. We used to have seven or eight sometimes on site. And we do about 60% of the hours that we used to work. 
so this central kitchen idea is, is really, really worked well. Um, it, we could possibly, people could possibly go into the central kitchen idea and offer that service to a lot of restaurants and make customized recipes and customized preparation, for example. I think the central kitchen is a good solution uh, for moving forward. Is it kind of a bummer, though? Uh, oh, <laughs> yes. Look, at the end of the day, like I said earlier, you've got to learn to change and change with the trends and change with the expectations and change with how people see life and want to work today. Um, if not, you'll get left behind. So, But at the same stage, and I guess what you're steering me towards, yes, I do have my personal opinion on it. Um, I think what's difficult here, and I know chefs and especially young chefs have probably heard this from older chefs and they go, yeah, yeah, whatever, but at the end of the day, it's not we, – we, we need to be able to decipher what's professional cooking and what's a trade because they're two very, very different things. And if we – until we want to go down that path or hold that conversation or put in times of apprenticeships and different styles of training to afford what goes into being a professional compared to a tradesman um, – well, then we'll always be going around in circles and having these conversations. So, you know, all this, the time I spent over in the Northern Hemisphere, you don't have someone – if someone was working like you do in a two- or three-star kitchen, in a gastronomic kitchen, if you're working like that in a bistro, selling steak frits and uh, escargot and, you know, all those classics and terrine and blah, blah, if you were working the same hours and the same days, well, that would be taking the piss. And everyone would know that. It's pretty clear what it is you're up for and where do you want to be at the end of this training. Um, and I guess going back to some of the focus on the media around our, our profession and our industry over the last few years, I would question, I would challenge them to go into a bank, go into a law firm, go into a real estate agent, go into a shopping centre. And if you get it and you go, if you go around those circles and talk to those people, you will find the same problem in all different platforms of work. So why is our industry in the limelight? I seen a story in the in the paper uh, uh, last year about Woolies, and it was a tiny little column, four pages into the paper. Yet if it's a chef, they're on a headline on the front page of the newspaper, or they're getting chased down the street by a journalist. It doesn't make sense. Mm, yeah. So are you saying like perhaps there could be a shorter apprenticeship for someone who's into cooking as a trade because you know they just they want to they want to know they can always get a job but they may only have the ambition to cook at um i don't know like at an institutional level um, i think so absolutely yeah. and Whereas if, you know well one size well one hat doesn't fit all in 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 this industry it just doesn't you know i was talking to a young fellow that's working at a regional pub he's doing over you know over 60 odd hours a week and they don't make anything it's you know even which is a shame because good pub food can be fantastic if it's done well um but everything's bought in everything's just heated and served and whatnot so doing those hours that is what i would call taking the piss because what are you getting out of it you're not getting anything you're now servicing you're you know you're being used to run that venue wholly and solely and that's it what's coming back to you for doing that extra work so but the 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 decision uh, the decision process for young people to want to work more to learn more to have a career a higher career and be able to uh you know 
decide what they want to do that 10 years down the track or six years or eight years down the track, that's being taken away from a lot of good young people that do want to work. And that's where I get a little bit jaded with the old guard that, you know, he always bangs on about, oh, they're not like we used to be and they're, they're soft and blah, blah. That's rubbish. I have a lot of fantastic young people through my team. and uh, and But the issue is, um, which they'll be the first to say, the potential or the, uh, the opportunity for them to, devote themselves more to a craft, which it is a craft, um, has been taken away from them because it, because I can't let them stay longer and do all that work. Is that fair? I would probably say not. So, And I guess that one hat fits all for cooking, um, which is decided by the powers to be. It's just wrong. And we lose good people from the industry all the time. And one thing that's important to note is that everybody should be on the same platform. So if you're a gastronomic chef and you work in a premium restaurant and you're doing artisan style cooking and um, that's great, you are no more important than somebody who is training hard to run a hospital in an institution or a nursing home. Look how poor the nursing food is in general throughout the industry. You'll know we're more important than them, but they need to specialise in a different style of cooking. They need to specialise in dietary food and uh, and they, they need to be a champion of that. So do you need to work... 12 hours a day or 14 hours a day for five years to learn that? Probably not. It's a different style of training. So, And same for short order cooking in sporting clubs and RSLs and leagues clubs and cafes doing short order cooking and great breakfast style dishes and short order lunch meals. Again, should you be working 12 to 14 hours a day doing that? I would say no. And do you need to do a five-year apprenticeship or do you need to work 10 years straight to learn how to do that? No. So then... Why do we have one, one size fits all? If you want to be the executive chef of a five-star hotel with 400 rooms, banqueting for 1,000 people, nine different outlets, blah, blah, do you think you're going to be able to do that in, after three years? No chance. No chance. Not a hope in the world. So therefore, why is it a three-year apprenticeship? It doesn't make any sense. If someone wants to be the first violinist in a symphony orchestra, no one tells them to stop practising. Exactly right. Exactly right. A hundred percent. And you know what? The, this system causes us to lose a lot of good people. And now we have kitchens uh, and uh, chefs championed on TV, and that's great. You know, I thought they were all mad wanting being on TV, looking at it. You know, from abroad. When I came home, I said I'd never do it. But in 2017, when we built the new Montrachet, going into 2018, I was approached by Master Chef to do a show. And I said to my wife, "There's no way I'm doing it. I don't feel. I don't. I don't think I should do it." And um, but I'm a cookie boy, so I just. I really just like being in the kitchen. So even after all the things we own and 130 odd staff, I like to spend most of my time in the kitchen. So, um, but my wife said, "You know, people like you, you're going to be this old fuddy duddy in years to come and be angry with everybody because no one cares or <laughs> you know respects what you did and blah blah." So now's your opportunity to show people what you can do, and maybe that'll inspire young people to want to be a chef. And when I thought of it that way, um, I thought, well, maybe that's, that's a good point. So I went on, and I'm really glad I did because I met an amazing young of, uh, group of amateur cooks that absolutely blew me away on how hard they could work, absolutely blew me away. It was amazing. Um, but what's their pathway into a professional kitchen? Other people watching that, that's what made me sort of retrospectively look back at it and think, well, if someone's looking at home now and I – and I've inspired somebody to want to cook for a living, well, how do they know where they should start going by their, you know, their mental stability, how strong they are, how, what they can, pressure can they handle? Well, who knows? Because, you know, um, we, have to, we have to consider those things now to keep people in the long term. I think in any, in any job, not just cooking, 
that's that, that seems to be the way of the world. So if they don't have pathways to choose with all the information laid out, they might aim too high. And after six months go, my God, I can't handle that. And they're out. So that person leaves the industry forever, but they could have been a champion at something else in the industry. But now we'll never know because they had a bad experience or so, or they started off too high um, or didn't research enough. What is it going to take? Um, they don't realize that if you work in a two or three out restaurant, your pay is probably going to be worse than if you worked at a local leagues club, for sure. Mm. And no one tells them that. So they don't, they're not prepared for that. They don't know. You know, when I did my apprenticeship, I used to get, I used to work out that I was, for my whole first year, I was on around a dollar an hour. Jeez. <laughs> and I wouldn't change it for the world because that wasn't what it was about. I've had a huge career because of that foundation and that's what I worked for and that's what I got because I worked for it. Yeah, but there's just got to be different pathways now, doesn't there? Yeah, oh, there does, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I think so. And But also customer expectation. You know, no one talks about that enough in the industry real because that hasn't changed, especially for the – that 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 does flow into the kitchen quite a lot, but it also flow really flows onto the pressures of the front of house. So I'll put this to you: if you go to a Coles or a Woolworths now, or some or a Bunnings or any other shops, you don't pay any less for your product, but you've got to check out yourself. If you go into a bank now, there's one teller, maybe two if you're lucky, and you're in the line for 20 minutes when you used to walk into a bank and straight out. Same with the post office, same with all general services, right? All the services will be cut, 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 and the prices are going up and up and up and up and up. So in a restaurant, if you're five minutes late turning a table, people are in your face. If you're too late getting a meal out, people are in your face, and so on and so on and so on. So nothing's been our industry. We can't dumb down what we do. The expectations are there, as they always have been, if not more, yet... The labour cost is huge and it's hard to work out how to dumb down what we deliver as far as service goes. So if you think of it that way, our industry is really, really difficult at the moment for, for many reasons, for many reasons. It's not like, so imagine if you come into Montrachet, I had a restaurant and I said, oh, I've had to you know, reduce my wages by 20% and the payroll tax and the super and all the deferred payroll tax from last year, that all that's owed now. So we're paying double that and you know, all my new businesses didn't get any job keeper because they were new. So when we finished building all this facility here, um, we got shut down, we moved in in February. So because all my business were new with 60 staff inside, I didn't get a cent of job keeper because it was a new business. It's just unbelievable. So, and then you look at big corporations using their strategies to, you know, to, to retain the job keeper and still getting the dividends and blah, blah. It's just mind blowing. So, but we can't cost, we can't reduce our cost of wages. If I said I'll reduce, you know, wages by 20%, sorry, you need to come to the counter to order your meal, I wouldn't, my restaurant would be shut within a week. So, it's very hard to try and keep doing what we're doing, but keep up with the times as well and also the, the costs. Mm. So, okay, Shannon, so PM's on the phone and he wants you to fix hospitality, sort out this staffing problem that everybody's got. Um, what what can you tell him? What, what should be done? Well, I guess if you look at what's a short-term fix, because training, changing the way, I guess, giving more resources to people for training, because training is expensive, 
And that's another thing, you know, without the chef owners, without many chef owners, I would really challenge people to walk into any kitchen or any restaurant and give it and ask for a dollar figure on how much it costs to train someone. And I tell you that and I guarantee you a lot of them will look at you like a rabbit in headlights. <laughs> okay. It's true. So, so there's an issue right there. But if we're after a quick fix, I would probably say that we need skilled workers to come into the country immediately. So to read, uh, to give you an example, uh, I have, um, Many, quite a few sponsored staff throughout all my businesses that specialize in certain areas, especially in the patisserie, for example, um, and also the artisan bread making. So, but they've been with me for some time. So as their sponsorships come to the end and they choose if they want to move around or they want to go back home, um, well, who am I going to replace them with? No one. My, the, the biggest risk that my business has right now is not having skilled staff to replace skilled staff that potentially will be uh, leaving soon. That's my biggest fear right now. I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I'm, I'm, I just don't. Um, but no matter what experience I've got, I don't have an answer for that. And it's um, we're certainly causing uh, uh, a lot of loss of sleep at night at the moment. So I would probably say that we need to get skilled workers in and, and create a special visa to get bakers and pastry chefs. And chefs aren't Chefs are probably up there for some venues, and that's certainly to do with the, the current training situation over the last several years, how that's changed. But when it comes to specialty areas like patisserie and bakery, uh, we're in all sorts. Um, so I would suggest probably we certainly need a special visa set up. You know, I just read yesterday that there's a visa made for veterinary surgeons to bring them into the country because there's not enough vets. Well... I'll tell you what, if a chef got a vet's wage, they'd be bang, they'd be probably in their canoes trying to get over here. So, <laughs> you know, but look, yeah, I think, and I just think that we're not in, and no disrespect to, vet, to vets, go for it. Good luck to them. And I'm sure they've been working hard. But when you see in the newspaper that a hard week, 60 hours, well, I'm sorry, but again, not in sync at all on what's going on in our industry for, for the people at the top. If I did 60 hours a week, I'd be, I'd be bored. <laughs> what about a medium term or a longer term solution, Shannon? Medium term, longer term solution. I think we need to really strip right back the RTO system and how, how the training is being done. I really think that um, medium medium term. I think assisting business owners to be able to do their own training in house and afford. See, you got to look at it this way. There's a smaller pool of professionally trained people in our industry. So if they're relying on more than ever now to keep the businesses going and all the pressure is dumped on them to keep it going, and certainly if, you know, talking to people in the industry that are the highly skilled people, the pressure's all on them because they're the ones that know how to get through this and how to work harder and they're taking on all the slack. So how are they ever going to train people? They're not. So there's less people with the required skills to train the younger people coming through. Um, and on top of that, they're inundated at the moment. So they can't train anybody because they're getting flogged. So I would certainly say that the government need to give some, uh, some grants to, uh, to our hospitality businesses so they can take, get some more hands on deck where those hands are going to come from. Who knows? I guess, you know, things doing the things like the uh, taking away the 20 hours a week for the students. I think that's been a massive help quickly. It certainly has been. But people need some more hands uh, to take away the tedial tasks that are unskilled, like the cleaning and the vegetable prepping. And, you know, you can't have highly skilled people covering that and trying to run the business and trying to train people. 
is just too much because the few professionals that are left in the industry now, they're all going to be burnt out as well. Some of them already are. So, um, yeah, I think, um, you know, the short term certainly is looking at getting skilled people into the country and get them quarantined, get them into people's businesses um, to help them take the trade. That's, and, you know, the sad part about it is the trade's there. For a lot of people, the trade's there. And, like you, you know, you look at the poor, the poor buggers down in Victoria that were shut for so long and so many venues, uh, you know, people staying internally in the country. It should be making up for all that lost ground of last year and it's just another kick in the guts right now because they're shutting down on certain days because they haven't got enough people. Like, it's just a, it's, when you think about it that way, it's just phenomenal. Um, so, yeah, I think that's certainly short-term, long-term. I think we need to really look at how the RTO is being done and give people some resources so they can maybe look after training themselves in their own workplace. Yeah. What about it, it being in a, seen as an attractive industry in the first place, you know, that it's a, people were proud to go into hospitality? I mean, do you think that there's, there's a cultural um, problem in Australia that, that hospitality jobs aren't as valued as they should be? Absolutely. You know, there's a stigma around that in Australian culture and there always will be. You know, I'm I'm not a European saying this, so I'll say it open-heartedly. I'm an Aussie as Aussie as they come. I'm fourth-generation Australian. So, um, but I've travelled a little bit, so I see things in different perspectives. So, yes, for sure, of course we do. I still get crap from my – I'm 44 years of age. I still get crap from my older brothers for wearing an apron. You know, it's, wow. it's, just, the, yeah, it's just the way it is. And, you know, I take it with a laugh and a shrug and that's okay. Um, I'd rather wear an apron and stink like grease every day, but um, so that's okay. But um, And I think for a lot of people in Australian hospitality, you're really seen as, I'm not sure if there's a better word to use, but I'll say servant. So, you know, you working unsociable hours, Friday nights, Saturday nights, working most nights, um, missing out on birthdays, missing out on family events, you know, almost being a little bit recluse. And who do you hang around? Who do you meet? Most, you know, I've barely met a chef from my generation that isn't married to a maitre d', a sommelier, a restaurateur, um, maybe the odd person in human resources. You know, if you're from a hotel, who knows? But where do you go and meet people? So, you know, that's the way it always used to be. So I think people have moved on from that now and they have a different expectation. So that makes it very difficult attracting people to the industry as well. Unless people want to change their eating habits and go out at daytime, um, you know, a few days a week and you're only open a couple of nights a week, but how are you going to fund the restaurant? So, I, you know, all those things, certainly we have a different outlook on hospitality, again, in general. There's some people that love hospitality and love that lifestyle but it's not a common it's not as common as what you would see in other countries that's for sure mm. yeah well why do you love it why are you still doing it shannon oh look i think you need to be a little bit of a nutter to be uh, <laughs> a great chef i think you need to be a little bit different um to uh, to want to devote certainly to the level that i have um and you know your family has to mold around that and that's what I'm used to. That's what I've seen. I've worked with a lot of chef owners overseas. I've been in their kitchens, um, been mentored by a lot of them. And I guess from what, I, what I've always known since I started this at the age of 16 is that whoever the chef is of the family, the family are all in. Um, doesn't mean they're all going to be a chef or work in that industry, but their lives certainly revolve around 
the person in the family, whether it's the mother or the father that does that for a living, certainly everybody moulds around that. And it's been the same for my kids. I've got three kids. One's 20, one is 12, one is 10. They're in the kitchen all the time. My oldest boy works with me full time. He plays sport. Um, so he does all the dispatch every day at 5.30 and works He works really hard. Um, and he's But he's grown up seeing how hard I've worked and coming commuting backward and forwards from overseas. Um, you know, they've they've just sort of seen that and they've all had to grow up around it. And hospo kids are usually pretty mature and pretty um, self-sufficient. He had to, you know, get himself to school, make his own lunches, iron his own uniform. He used to iron my uniform every day while I was home um, to learn how to iron properly from the age of 12. He was ironing my uniform every day, perfectly pressed. And if it wasn't done perfectly, he had to do it again. Um, so... I guess those standards and the, and that work ethic, certainly your family has to mould around it. But that's, you know, it's a rare thing. I guess it's a small percentage um, and even smaller now than, than, than what it used to be. So the kitchen for me used to be a um, an oasis. It used to be, it used to be, you know, I used to always think to myself, it's hard. And when I started, it was like, wow, you know, it was bloody like full on and uh, exhaustion. And, but the one thing I loved about it was, is that not one problem in life could bother me while I was inside that kitchen. No one was allowed in that kitchen. You weren't allowed to walk into a chef's kitchen, no matter who you were, what you did, what issue was outside, what family problem you got, whatever issues in society and life or whatever, no one can bother you when you're inside your kitchen. And again, I guess that might be a weird way of thinking, but, I liked it when I was young and that's why I just threw myself into it and I love being in the kitchen mm. and I still do. Um, wow, Shannon, I love it. It's so incredible to get your perspective um, and the benefit of yeah, all your years in the industry. I think it's really interesting how innovative you have found that you have to be but you've certainly made the best of it. Um, yeah, you got any final words for the Dirty Linen audience who I'm sure are hanging on everything that you say? <laughs> oh, look, I'd probably – final words? Um, well, look, I just think forget all the uh, – you know, forget all the if, – if, if, you, if you're thinking about getting into cooking, you know, first of all, do your research on where you're going to work. Be committed. Practice a lot at home and, uh, you know, cook for people. If you love that, you need to find that. If you love cooking and you're passionate about it, you need, you need to find that bridge of loving cooking but also having a career because they're two very different things. So you've got to have a bridge that connects the two. And if you can find that, you're half a chance. That's probably the best thing I've, I can finish off by saying. Yep, very wise words. Um, Shannon, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat to us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, take care. Thank you. You too. Thank Bye for you. now. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.